As we jump into this psalm, the first six verses reveal David's awareness that God has complete and total knowledge about every aspect of David's life. Verse by verse, David speaks of the intimacy with which God knows who David is and what David does. First verse two shows us that God knows about every action that David engages in, when he sits and when he stands, and he knows every thought that crosses David's mind. You discern my thoughts from afar. But God's knowledge doesn't end with what David is doing in the present or what he's currently thinking of. No, God's knowledge extends to everything that David does. Verse 3 speaks of God searching out David's path and God's knowledge of all of David's ways. God's knowledge extends beyond what we're doing in the present moment. It includes things we'll do even before we do them. It includes our plans of action. It includes full knowledge of our habits and our vices. Next, verse 4 continues to expand upon God's knowledge of us to include every word we speak and every sentence we form in our minds. So very quickly in three verses, David reminds us of God's comprehensive knowledge of his people. He knows what we're doing. He knows what we're thinking. He knows what our plans are. He even knows what we're going to say. And when I say his people, I don't mean just his chosen people. I mean every single person that he's made because God has complete and total knowledge over all of his creatures. Now, if you believe in God, these truths may not be all that surprising or even shocking to you, but we sometimes forget what this means for us on a moment-to-moment and second-by-second basis. The significance of God's total and complete knowledge of us is huge. In the midst of this season, the sheer overload of information and emotions that we're experiencing is often too much for us to process, to understand, or even to put words to. So some of us might set aside time to pray and then just find ourselves sitting or lying down or kneeling and nothing coming into our minds and nothing coming out of our mouths. We don't understand our own hearts. We can't sort out what we're feeling. But David's song reminds us that when we're unable to understand or even figure out what we're thinking, God knows. He knows so completely and totally that we don't have to give voice to anything in his presence because he knows what we're feeling even better than we know ourselves. We sometimes get small glimpses of this kind of intimate you know, knowledge in our relationships with other people. As a general rule, I never make specific requests or give gift ideas when the Christmas season rolls around or when the day is approaching my birthday. And though this drives my family and Courtney crazy, for me, the joy of not knowing what they're going to give me is always better than anticipating a gift that I already know I specifically asked for. And every once in a while, someone gives me a present that reveals such a sweet understanding or knowledge of me that I realize that I'm known by that person in a way that others don't. My son Malachi is a huge Spider-Man fan. And though I've tried to indoctrinate him at an early age to love the Incredible Hulk, Spider-Man is his guy. And we've watched Into the Spider-Verse and some of the other Spider-Man movies several times together. So at Christmas, Courtney thought it would be sweet to buy both of us matching glasses that are worn by Tony Stark in one of the Marvel movies that he then gives to Peter Parker. 
And while it was small and even a silly present, it showed Courtney's knowledge of me and my likes, but also this sweet shared experience that Malachi and I have together as father and son that she knew would be meaningful to me. Of course, on any given day, there are far more times when I don't even understand myself or my actions, let alone the people close to me. And that's why it's so powerful to know that God lacks nothing when it comes to his knowledge of us. He knows the thoughts that occupy our mind. He knows our fears, our anxieties, our frustrations. And therefore, there's nothing we can say or think that surprises him. He knows our fears better than we do. He knows our worries and why we worry better than we do. So we can feel free to come before him in silence when we don't know what we're feeling. We can come before him with the rawest of emotions and in both situations, he knows us and he welcomes us in. Many people, both Christians and non-Christians, cringe when they think about God's total knowledge concerning us. While we might wonder how awesome it would be to know what goes on in other people's minds, we're thankful that others can't get into ours. And we cringe because we're overwhelmed by the thought of what God would think of us when he encounters our darkest thoughts about others, about the world, about our current situation, or even about him. And yet the deepest hope and promise of the gospel is that Christ knows all of our thoughts, all of our feelers, all of our pains, all of the darkness. And he willingly died for us so that we could be forgiven and embraced. Jesus never had a sinful thought pass through his mind. He only thought in ways that were pleasing to his father. And therefore, even when we find our thoughts going to dark places, either because of our struggles with sin or because we're frail, we can place our hope and trust in Jesus and know that nothing we think or feel will ever separate us from God. One of the most powerful examples of this is found in the Gospel of Luke. As Jesus tells his disciples that they're all going to fall away from him when he's arrested, Peter's sure he has enough self-knowledge to know that that's never going to be the case with him. But Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. You know, one thing I never noticed was that the you in this verse is plural. So while Jesus is speaking to Peter, he's actually including all of his followers in the statement. He knows that not only will Peter fall away, but all of the disciples will do the same. Jesus is never surprised by what we think and what we do. He knows every sin. He knows everything we've ever trusted in other than him. He knows the things we find more joy in than him. He knows where our deepest hopes lie. He knows we sin in ways we don't even think is possible. He knows we sometimes even surprise ourselves. But you see, we'll never surprise him. He knows it all, and he knows it before we know it. And the good news is that when we trust in him and his record, we can lay it all before him and know that we're still his. The good news is that he loves us despite all that he knows about us. The good news is that even when we don't know our thoughts, we can ask God to reveal our hearts to us, and he's able to do that. When Peter denies Jesus, one of the reasons he weeps is because what Jesus told him he would do has actually happened. And in his actions, God revealed to Peter more about himself than he knew prior to his denial. But we also have to remember that after Jesus is resurrected, he seeks out Peter and encourages him. 
Peter will go on to become one of the most significant leaders in the first years that follow Christ's ascension to heaven. Despite Peter having denied him three times, in Christ, Peter and you and I are completely and totally forgiven. We're fully known and we're fully loved. The first encouragement from Psalm 139 is that we have a God who knows us completely and fully and yet loves us. The second encouragement comes in verses 7 through 12, when we see that not only does God know everything about us and still love us, but God is actually always close to us. David's song moves now to focus on God's constant presence in our lives. There's nowhere we can go where God is not right there beside us. As we looked two weeks ago at Psalm 90, remember Moses and the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years without a home. But God was always present with his people as a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And then whenever they would pitch camp, his presence would fill the tabernacle that was erected at the center of their campsite. But though God's presence was unique and specific in the context of the tabernacle, God is never confined to a particular place. And David reminds us of this truth in these six verses. In verse seven, he says, where shall I go from your spirit? In verse eight, he says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And then in verse nine, he says, God is present if he takes the wings of the morning or dwells in the uttermost parts of the sea. And then in verses 11 and 12, David speaks of God's presence in the deepest darkness because even there, God can see him. All of these verses focus on extremes, on, on polar opposites, the heavens and the depths of show where the dead go. Then he says the wings of the morning, which would have referred to where the sun rises every morning in the east. And then the uttermost parts of the sea would have been to the Israelites associated with the end of the Mediterranean Sea, which was west of Israel. And then he ends with the darkness. David is saying, if I go as high in the skies as is possible to go, or if I go into the depths of the earth where the dead lay, you're there. If I go as far east or as far west, you're there. If I go into the darkest of nights and I can't even see my own hands in front of me, God is still there right beside him and right beside us. And then note the very intimate image David uses to describe the presence of God. It's not this impersonal force that hovers above us or this creepy stalker that's right behind us watching our every move. Now in verse 10, David uses one of the most tender images one could imagine when he says, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. David describes God's presence like a father holding a child's hand. I remember in September when Courtney and I walked Marwin to school for the first time to begin our kindergarten year. And as we held her hand, there was this unspoken realization that she was entering a new world, homework, the kindness and cruelty of her classmates, the world of school with teachers and new subjects. And that morning, holding her hand was a reminder that we were gonna be there to get her at the end of the school day, and that we were gonna walk with her in this new season of school, and that we were gonna be there as long as God permits us to. Handholding is also an intimate image. We hold hands with our spouses, and that language brings to mind walks on the beach or date nights. David describes God's presence in the tenderest of ways. 
And just like we often think about God's complete knowledge of us as intimidating, we often think of his constant presence in our lives in a similar manner. We think of God surrounding us more often like Agent Smith surrounding Neo in the Matrix. Wherever we turn, there he is, ready to pounce on us, ready to catch us when we're vulnerable. But David wants us to see God's presence only as a great comfort. He wants us to see we have a loving father who never lets his children face anything alone. If we're going to draw another pop culture reference, one might think of Obi-Wan Kenobi speaking to Luke at the end of the first Star Wars movie when he's approaching the Death Star and facing the greatest challenge of his life. Or in the new Disney, the, the rise of uh, Skywalker, right? When the Jedi surround Rey as she battles the Emperor in, in the movie. She's lifted up and she's being held by every Jedi Knight warrior that lived before her. But for Christians, unlike any other religion, we have a God who sent his son to be among us. Jesus took on flesh and lived among his people. And he was willing to pay the highest price so that God could draw near to us. The cost of us experiencing God's comfort is unparalleled. Jesus hugged the wood of the cross and was whipped and mocked so that we could experience God's comfort in our struggles. Jesus willingly entered into that suffering so we could always be comforted by the presence of God in our lives. He lost the comforting presence of God on the cross so that we never will. I don't know how many of you have seen the film, The Passion of the Christ, but there's this scene at the end that always makes me weep. Jesus has been beaten and he's now carrying the cross to the place where he's gonna be crucified. And as he's walking, he falls. And his mother seeing him rushes to be at his side. And the scene is cross cut with Jesus as a young boy falling near their home where we see a younger Mary running to pick him up from off the ground. So we see her running to get her son in the past, intercut with her running to her son now as he's carrying the cross and she wants to help him. And when she reaches him, he touches her face and he says something that God says to John in the book of Revelation, I'm making all things new. And then Jesus stands and hugs the cross as he continues his walk to Calvary. Jesus died to restore our relationship with God and to ensure that God's presence for us is always gonna be a source of comfort and strength. That being said, there is one significant difference between David's experience of God's presence and ours today. In verse seven, David says, where shall I go from your spirit? And the answer that his question is beckoning is nowhere. There's nowhere in the world where the spirit of God is not present. But for us today, the Spirit of God dwells permanently in each of us. The temple's no longer a place where we have to go. We have become temples. And the same Spirit that raised Christ has not only given us new life, but resides within us. So while we were once enemies of God, Christ has reconciled us to our Father. And as Paul writes in Ephesians, he says, Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. David was filled with the Spirit throughout his reign as king over Israel, but we live after the Messiah has been revealed, after he defeated sin and death. And we live as those who have been united to the Messiah by faith in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit not only convicts us of sin or shows us we need a Savior, but enables us to run to God and call him Dad. The Spirit unites us to each other. 
So if you find yourself alone in this season, remember that in Christ we're never alone, for we're filled with the Spirit of the living God. Reach out to your brothers and sisters, call them, text them, FaceTime them, and be reminded that you're not alone, but are part of the body of Christ, called to hold and carry one another in this season. The next portion of the Psalm, verses 13 through 18, continue to provide us with assurance that God loves and cares for us as David focuses on God's action in our lives. If David begins with God's knowledge and then continues with God's presence, he then moves on to God's action in these last verses. And what's maybe initially surprising is where David goes when he thinks about the actions of God. He doesn't go to the present circumstances that David finds himself in, trying to see what God is at work at now. And he doesn't even look to the recent past. No, David goes all the way back to the moment he was conceived in his mother's womb. For David, God's actions and work are present from the very beginning. Actually, even before David's beginning. Look at verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. David is reminding himself and us that even before we were conceived, God was at work and was unfolding his plan to bring us into the world. And just as David gives us this intimate image of God holding our hands as he's ever present with us, here, as David sings about his own birth, again, the language is very personal and very intimate. Listen to his words, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. David is singing about an artist the divine sculptor stooping down and using his hands to craft a precious work of art, one of his children. You know, it's very easy and tempting in times of suffering like we're currently experiencing to think that God is absent, that he's not at work, that he's not thinking of us at all. And when we're isolated from one another, this temptation is magnified because we may not be connecting enough with others to remind us of the truth when we're alone. We may be struggling to believe what we're reading in God's word to us. But when David brings us back to the beginning of his own life and he uses this language, you knitted me together, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, we're being reminded that we're not haphazard creations. We're not some fortunate accident, the unexpected result of some experiment that began with some other intention. Now in Genesis, we see our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit having a conference with one another before making Adam and Eve in the image of God. And while all of creation is special, when God made our first parents, it was different. We're precious in His sight. We're the pinnacle of His creation. And after He made Adam and Eve, He declared His creation very good, unlike the good that accompanied all the previous days. There's a different level of care when God made us. And when he puts us over his creation to steward it, to care for it, to cultivate it, God's special love and care for us that led him to make us in the first place doesn't go away at any phase of our lives. We're his children and he loves us and cares for us during every single time we face. If you're a parent, stop for a moment and think about your own children. Before you have a child, Every parent you know has a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff to say to you about being a parent. But one thing almost everyone hears is that there's life before children are born and then there's life 
after your children are born and your life is never the same after you have a child. And it seems so obvious, but the implications of that simple truth are so huge because once you have a child, you never stop being their parent. We don't care for our kids until they can walk on their own and then say, you're good, I'm done caring for you. We don't do that once they're in school or even after they graduate college. I'm old now and my parents still worry about me, still care for me, still want to make sure I'm okay and want to help in any ways that they can to help me flourish. Now, not all of us have had, been raised by parents that loved and cared for us, but you do have a father in heaven who knew about you and cared for you before you were ever a thought in your biological parents' minds because he had a plan for you to bring you into this world. David says in verse 16, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You hear that? Before we were even conceived, God knew us. He knew every day of our lives. He knew about these days we've been living through these past week. He knows what's coming down the road. And as our father, he remembers and loves and cares for each of us because we're his children. Every one of our lives is precious to him. Every experience we have, he knows about and desires for us to grow and lean into him more and more. Our culture has a very ambivalent attitude towards the value of life. In some ways, we make very little of it. But in this season, we've seen many governors throughout our country enact policies that reveal the preciousness of human life, young, old, strong, weak, and everyone in between. At the very heart of social distancing is a love for the weakest and most vulnerable. And it's this very biblical idea, right, that everyone is made in the image of God and every life is precious to him. So when you're tempted to think God is absent or uninvolved, remember what his song reminds us of. God was the one who brought our lives into being. He knit us in our mother's womb and he loves and cares for us. So all of his actions toward his children come from a posture of love and concern for us, his sons and daughters. And when we're tempted to doubt this, we have to remind ourselves of the message of Easter that Pastor Tom preached to us last week. God loves and cares for us so much that the moment our first parents disobeyed him, the moment they said, not your way, our way, the moment sin entered our world and destroyed our fellowship with God, our father responded by saying he would send someone to bring us back home to him that we would not remain orphans, but that Jesus would come and would lose fellowship with his father on the cross so that we could once again be welcomed home. And when we embrace Jesus by faith, we're welcomed home just like the prodigal son. God runs to us and lifts us up and says, I love you so much that I gave my son up to die for you. The Psalm ends with David making two sets of requests to God knowing that God alone has total and complete knowledge of us, knowing that he's ever present, knowing that he's ever acting on our behalf, David asks God to do two things. First, he cries out to God to take out his enemies. David never experienced an extended period of time in his life when he was not at war or was not being pursued by someone who wanted to kill him. Whether it was the lions and the bears that threatened his sheep when he was a shepherd, or the mocking Goliath, right, who led the Philistines, or even his son Absalom or King Saul, right? David was constantly on the run 
And here, like all the other times, David cries out to God to deliver him from his enemies. He asks God to slay the wicked. He cries out to God to punish those who take God's name in vain or rise up against God's people. David lives in a world where evil is present, and he wants God to do something about it in light of what he has just sung about God's knowledge and presence and action in his life. And just as David lives in a world where evil exists, so do we. This pandemic is not good. It's the definition of evil, isolating people, taking lives, causing suffering in countless spheres of life. And just as God hates sin, he hates its effects on his creation, illness, sickness, death, suffering. So just as David asked God to act on his behalf against his enemies, we must continue to ask God to act in the midst of this health crisis. We know that God hates his people's suffering. He hates death. And like David, we must continue to cry out day and night for this to end and for the numbers of lives lost to be far lower than the public health models have suggested. But that's not the only thing that David prays for. After praying for God to deliver him from his enemies, he asks God to do a work in him as well. The psalm begins and ends with similar language, where it opens up, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. It ends with the request for God to search David and know his heart, to reveal any grievous ways within David himself and for God to leave him, lead him to the way of everlasting. You see, David understood the same things that Paul understood about our hearts and about what God is capable of doing. Just as Paul quoting Psalm 14 says, no one is righteous, not one. And then later all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. David knows that his enemies are not only the ones that have offended God, but that he has too. And he knows like Paul, that God alone can take evil situations and bring about good in the lives of his people through the worst of circumstances. Because through the evil of the cross, God brought about redemption. So he prays this bold prayer that God would reveal his own heart to him, that God would lead him closer to himself and show David where he needs to grow and change. This is only possible with a God that knows everything about us and loves us. It's only possible with a God who will never leave us or forsake us. A God who is always acting on our behalf because he made us for himself. This is the one we can pray this kind of vulnerable prayer to. We have a God that sent his son to die for us when we hated him. We have a God that showed us mercy and took upon himself the justice we deserve and laid it all on his son so that we can feel safe when we ask him to show us how to grow. Because God is merciful, because he loves us, we can ask him to show us more of our own hearts in this season. We can ask him to change us because Christ died for us. We can run to our father while the confidence of knowing that he's always acting on our behalf. Because our God defeated death and destroyed the power of sin, we can ask him to chisel away at the part of us that he wants to make more like Christ. And we can do it with confidence because he loves us with a perfect love. In Christ, we've been promised eternal life. We have an unending future that awaits us with God and his people. And therefore, as a people with a secure future that no one and nothing can take away, we can trust that God will change us for the better through this season because that's what God is always up to 
in the lives of his people.